Hi, uh, Margie Krakowski with JLL. Uh, thank you to co-chairs Tony Smaniato and Jerry Moore for helping with all of our programming this year. And thank all of you for coming today. We've been working on a lot of new topics for our programs this year. Next month, we have speakers from GoGo and Groupon and other tech firms coming to share their perspectives. And please continue to monitor the website and eblasts for more information. Today's program is being podcast and posted to the website. And if you have your MCR, make sure you get your continuing education credits and register with Beth at the registration desk. And as always, we encourage your feedback at the end of the program. There will be surveys distributed during the Q&A discussion. Special thank you to Kyle Sales with JLL for helping with today's program. And today's topic, tapping into hidden potential, using your balance sheet to create value and lower occupancy costs. Bruce has a 15-year history of merchant banking and came to JLL over 10 years ago to create a corporate finance practice for corporate clients to better understand the financial impact of their real estate decisions and assist with portfolio strategy. Please welcome to the stage, Bruce Westwood Booth. Uh, thank you, Margie. Um, again, my name is Bruce Westwood Booth. I don't think we need that on, right? Good. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here today. I, I, my first opportunity to kind of talk to the Coronet uh, group here. And uh, as Margie had said, today we're going to kind of talk about you know, some of the strategies we help companies with or that companies kind of uh, do themselves to kind of really leverage the different uh, strengths that they have uh, in their own tenancy, in their balance sheet, in the way they borrow money, to really use that in a way to ultimately lower the occupancy cost associated with their real estate portfolio. Um, so let me get organized here. So today I'm going to talk to you um, about a little bit about the capital markets, just tell you kind of what's going on out there in the capital markets because everything is benchmarked against, you know, what kind of money is out there and how you can use it. We're going to talk about some tools that you have available at your disposal and how to kind of use those tools. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about how you kind of spot these opportunities and uh, then we'll go through some case studies. So I'm going to try to be a little bit more interesting than your chicken. But, you know, Maggiano's, that's a, that's a tough order to fill. So. so let's get right into the capital markets here. So what you see here on the screen behind me is really the global, um, the global transaction volume of what's happening globally in the real estate, in the real estate world as it relates to transactions that are happening. And, you know, as you look at it, you know, these things are, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing kind of what you expected to see. You know, we had a big trough happen in 2007 as volumes began to drop pretty precipitously across the world, uh, kind of bottoming out in 2009, and they've kind of come back, you know, gradually since then. This is a global picture. So we're looking at a low here of $400 billion of real estate deals being done back in 2009. And it's kind of grown to a little bit over uh, about $950 billion in the last 12 months. So it's been good steady growth. Cap rates globally are still uh, not where they were at the height of the season. 
And that's pretty much a global perspective, but let's kind of look at the U.S. and see how, how we relate back to what's happening globally. Well, it's a little bit of a different picture. There's some similarities. We had uh, extreme um, excitement in the industry in 2007. You could see the volumes there. You could see the cap rates um, uh, were really driven down pretty dramatically. But then we had the recession, the Great Recession. Uh, pretty much all of the bank money dried up, and, and then so goes the equity with, with the bank, with the debt money. And, you know, volume dropped remarkably at that point in time. But you could also see, and, and we're all feeling that ourselves, the big comeback. And, you know, this comeback that you see is kind of almost taking us to those 2005, 2006 levels at this point in time, which is all great. Cap rates are kind of readjusting to those, uh, those exuberant years once again, uh, which is all positive. Uh, but what's really notable here is if you look at the volume uh, in the trough, you know, we did about $100 billion in 2009. And if you look at that from a global perspective, that was about 25% of what happened globally. So 25% of that happened here in the U.S. But then when you look at today's picture, and we're at about um, $420 billion over the last 12 months in transaction volume, that's almost 50% of what's happening around the globe. So a lot of the action is happening right here. And a lot of people are trying to kind of get into these, into these markets and are investing pretty dramatically into these markets. So most of the volume is right here in our, in our, in our world. Um, so who is investing really is, is what we're looking at on these charts here. And you can see in 2007, the world was pretty much dominated from a real estate investment perspective uh, by the institutional investors and then also by uh, private capital. It was over 80%. It was coming from really two, two sources. And then you kind of see the drop off and how private capital kind of picked up the volume in 2009 and then 2012. Uh, but remember, those were reduced um, volume years anyway. So yeah, there was capital out there and they were funding it, but they're funding a lot less. What really you want to look at is kind of what's happening in 2013, where all the money came from. And really what you see is a very healthy, diversified set of investors. We are no longer dependent just on the institutionals to really help us drive market. And that's going to really be helpful from a sustainability perspective and then uh, also from an industry perspective to kind of keep this ball rolling. So we're not really invested into a single category of investor, which is, which is very helpful. So where is the money coming from and where is it going? Uh, one of the sources that has really invested more heavily in the U.S. is foreign sources. And we're seeing a lot of that money come in from overseas, as, as would make sense if 50% of the volume is happening here in the U.S. Um, and, and this is a, a chart that kind of shows you where some of that money is coming from. And you see the top three there. You see Canada investing very heavily in the U.S. You see China investing very heavily. Uh, Australia as well, and um, you know, right down to you know, you're seeing South Korea come into the money, and, and money from uh, the Middle East is coming into into our markets as well. Again, it's a very healthy trend. Where are they predominantly investing? You know, they tend to invest in the gateway cities, which is not unusual because if you're living abroad and you're saying where do I want to invest, you're not going to invest in you know a tier a tertiary market or you know a tier two market. You're probably going to stay with things that are well-known, places you might actually take a vacation. If you take a vacation there, they're probably ready to start investing there. That's kind of what we're seeing on the right side of the chart here. Uh, Manhattan with the lead, 
Los Angeles, Chicago has gotten a lot of investment recently uh, from all different parts of the globe, which is um, very encouraging. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of money come into the market, and where is it coming from, and why is it coming from, from this? And, and this chart here kind of shows you all the money that's been raised by the REITs uh, really in the last, we have five years here. And what you see there is that the REITs have been able to, and remember, they weren't a big investor. They were an investor in 2007, but they weren't the monster investor. Um, but, they're, but they're gaining momentum now. They're you know, a healthy 25% of the market. And what you're seeing is that the REITs now are just flush with cash. In fact, in the last five years, they've raised you know, over $280 billion of equity, which really is supporting over $700 billion of real estate investment. So they're coming into the market. They've got a lot of money to deploy. They're, they're very flush with cash that they have to deploy because they're, they're paying dividends on it. Uh, and, and, you know, we're continuing to see them aggressively bid deals and help with bidding down cap rates. So where do we see these investors? You know, how do we categorize these investors? Well, we categorize them from the expensive money to the low-cost money. And when you look at it that way, uh, you're looking at it from a developer being the people who have the most expensive equity capital right down to the income um, players who are the net least investors, and then the people in between. And right now, as we kind of see it, you know, the developers right now are still looking for returns anywhere between that, let's call it 18 to 25% kind of internal rates of return on their deals. And, and they should get that because guess what? They're speculators. They're going into risky situations, investing their equity, and they expect a return on that. Uh, then we're kind of coming down to the value-added funds, and these are the people, and we do a lot of work with these folks. They really do add a lot of value. Uh, these are the people that come in, take some amount of risk, but also have promises of income out to their investors. So they're kind of playing a little bit of a mixed bag there where they want some upside, but they also want some in income. So their IRRs are steep, but they're really not overwhelming. You know, they're in those mid-teens. Uh, IRRs, and you know when you convert that down to cap rates with leverages, you're looking at them being somewhere between that eight to ten percent cap range. Range. Then we have our regional investors, um, and and there's some you know they're income oriented people, but they like kind of managing real estate. Their return requirements are a little lower than the yield, the the value investors. Uh, you know we're kind of seeing them bid deals right now between the sevens and and the nine and a halfs, depending on the facts and circumstances of the particular transaction. But their yield requirements are lower. You know, they're in the uh, 10 to, you know, 13% range for IRR. And then we have the people we like to stick with as much as we can. And these are the income folks. Uh, whenever I'm working with one of our corporate clients, I'm trying to kind of steer this type of money into their, into their, um, into their budgets because this is the lowest cost of money. These are people who are looking at your real estate much the way they look at a bond. They're really there to invest solely in the income stream that they're gonna get out of it. They don't like taking a lot of risk, but they're also prepared to give you, you know, a modest, um, a modest cost of capital. And right now, you know, this market is very aggressive and we're seeing their deals priced up between anywhere between five and 8% for cap rates, again, depending on the real estate and where it is and uh, the terms and so forth. And their IRR returns are much lower. In fact, we see them under 10% in many cases. 
So what drives these, um, you know, what are the drivers when you're kind of looking at your real estate and you're saying, well, where do I match up with these investors? Um, and, and there's really, you know, as we look at it, there's um, several drivers to value here. And I've just listed uh, a few of them here. So we have lease term, obviously, no lease term versus a long-term lease. Again, you're in that continuum of investor. And we have that also for um, uh, the, the credit tenancy. Speculative credit is going to, you know, require a higher return, right down to investment grade or right up to investment grade where it's a lower return. So we just have some value drivers here that we've kind of listed out. We have property class included in there, location, property condition, um, structural obligations, everything from a gross will take care of your real estate to a bondable, which is you take care of everything. Uh, and right down to purchase options, you know, can you get them or, or can you not? All, you know, where your property sits and where your portfolio sits and how you approach the market is probably going to be placed on this continuum somewhere. And it's going to tell you what kind of investor is going to be suitable when you kind of go to market. Uh, I have a couple of examples. Uh, the first example I have here, just to show you more of a speculative investment, uh, BP owned all the Cantera buildings out in their campus in Naperville. You know, they realized at one point, you know what, we really have a lot of vacancy. We kind of want to move people around. We want to save some money. Um, what should we go to market with and, and what can we do? And they chose to go to market with two of their Cantera buildings, which were nice new buildings, um, but they really didn't need them. They really didn't need the space. They could redeploy those people other places and have some significant savings. And that's exactly pretty much what they did. Uh, they redeployed people. And, uh, you know, they sold these buildings um, in the, let's call it the low $50 uh, per square foot range. Uh, but the savings they got out of that was pretty dramatic because by coming out of these buildings and getting rid of that vacancy, you know, they were saving like $4.3 million a year in OPEX expenses. So um, even when you look at it from that perspective, and you look at that over 10 years, they're saving $43 million. Uh, as we began to help them look at the analysis and, and the value statement of, should I do a long-term lease and sell it for more, or should I just get out of it and, um, and move on, it really did come up to, um, to, the, to the latter decision for them. There was great savings in them coming out of it and selling the buildings, which they did. And they sold this to a speculator who, who bought it at a good value and has since, you know, in that time, in the last couple of years, sold both buildings. Um, and, you know, on average, they were in the, in the 80s. So they had a nice, healthy profit. But again, they stepped up and took the risk for, for that vacancy. On the other end of the spectrum, we have uh, Bank of America sale leaseback. You know, Bank of America said, you know what, we've uh, got these branches. You know, where, where is the future of banking in 15 years? And, you know, I don't think anybody could really raise their hand and say, we know where banking will be. We know what the retail experience of banking is going to be in 15 years. Because if you go back 15 years, it was a whole different, it was a whole different world as to how you banked and where you banked and what you went into when you banked. So Bank of America said, you know what, we're going to kind of take this portfolio to market. And, um, and we're going to offer some great terms to, to these investors. But for that, you know, we want a great cost of capital for these deals. And that's kind of what they did. We took uh, to market for them 31 properties on a 15-year sale leaseback. Um, uh, these properties uh, were located in California. And basically, uh, you know, we got that deal done for them at a very low cap rate, 15-year leases. Uh, the cap rate was under 5%. I can't get into this exacts, but uh, it was under 5% 
for 15-year deals with you know modest modest rent increases. So to them that was a great deal because you know their own capital that they charged themselves internally cost a lot more than that sub four cap rate that they got. And they got some gain out of that. They got some upfront gain. And it was even, uh, as we kind of did the analysis for them, accretive to their earnings as well. So it was a great deal for them. Um, so now I'm going to kind of turn over to you know, what we think are some of the ways that, uh, some of the tools that you have you know, at your disposal to really begin to leverage you know, transactions within the market. And, uh, you know, as we kind of look at it, you know, you've got, you've got about six different points of leverage as you begin to work with investors uh, that you can really use to your benefit. Uh, the first one is lease term, you know, whether you're looking at a short or a long-term lease term. When you have a long-term lease term, you begin to develop a lot of leverage as, as a corporate when you're approaching an investor. Uh, it's a big point of leverage, and we're going to show you kind of how to, how, to how to use that. Uh, your rent, you know, where your current rent is, another point of leverage. Uh, your creditworthiness comes into play in many of these different tools that we're going to talk about, uh, whether you're speculative credit or investment grade credit. Again, you can really begin to use that to your benefit when you're trying to access the market for capital. Uh, your balance sheet, how you want to use your balance sheet, uh, again, is going to uh, create situations that are going to allow you to kind of lower your occupancy cost. Uh, your vacancy and, and what you're ready to do, or, you know, called vacancy or occupancy, really what you're ready to do with your occupancy. Uh, there's some tools available for you in using that as a leverage. And then your discount rate. And, you know, the discount rate, we could spend a whole afternoon just talking about discount rate methodology and how companies use it. But at the end of the day, you know, companies have made the decision, you know, our, our discount rate is either going to be X, let's call that 11%, or it's going to be Y 4%. Doesn't matter what it is. What matters is how we begin to use it and how we begin to make that discount rate work for you to, again, lower your occupancy cost within your portfolio. So I'm going to go into uh, five, six, seven different tools here that um, I think you can begin to use and use some of these leverage points to kind of benefit your, your real estate portfolio. The first one we're going to talk about is uh, acquiring real estate. You know, I can't tell you how many times uh, my phone will ring and on the other end will be uh, a client who says, you know what, I'm confronted with the decision of should I own or should I lease? And, you know, we kind of help them kind of make those decisions. And I got to tell you, um, uh, more and more, you know, the decision to own is coming up as much as the decision to lease. So it's, you know, we're you should be agnostic to it, you know, whether you own or lease. What, what you really want to do is say, what is best for us in our circumstance? And that's kind of what, um, what we're going to talk about in the first transaction here. Um, you know, the first thing is acquiring. And, and the situation that we have here that I'm going to talk to you about is um, one where, you know, you currently are leasing a property, but maybe you should own it. Uh, but just talking about some of the things that you look at for, for ownership and, and why you might want to own something. Um, you always want to own something if you can acquire it very cheaply. And that's because there's very little risk in, in reselling it if you've acquired it at the right cost basis. You naturally, if you own it, you get uh, complete control over the property. Uh, you get to, if you're buying it from a lease situation, you actually get to reset your leasehold improvements. 
you know, a lot of times when you're in a property for four or five years, you're continually investing into that property, but you can only depreciate those improvements over the remaining term of the lease. But if you owned it, guess what? You could depreciate it over 15 or 40 years, depending on the class of property. Again, that's going to be a real help to your occupancy cost. Um, you no longer have to pay a rent. Uh, <laughs> goes without saying. Uh, and uh, the net present value benefits if um, uh, there could be a net present value benefit if you have a low cost of capital. So things you think about as you think about ownership, you know, the asset does go on the balance sheet, which is not always something that um, people like. Uh, the, the debt, if you're buying a, an already encumbered asset, which is not uncommon uh, to buy an asset, you see the lease go away, but guess what? There was debt on that asset that you can take out economically. So that would actually come onto your balance sheet too, so you have to be careful of that. Uh, your expected tenure of use, so suddenly, once you acquire something, you know, you're picking up the residual risk. So you're gonna wanna know that you're gonna be in there long term, uh, otherwise it might not be very useful for you to do that. Um, and not only that, but your discount rate's gonna play into this because you know what? Real estate for a user is not such a great investor is not such a great investment because it doesn't really have the same type of returns that you might be getting from your business. And the potential loss. You know, it's, it's, it's not uncommon to sell a building at the end of your use, you're all corporate users, and you're selling it vacant because how else would you sell it, right? Uh, and, and when you sell something vacant, you know, you're, you probably are looking at a loss unless you've held it for a long period of time and have depreciated it for a long period of time. So I got some, an example here, you know, again, when you, when you want to leverage something, uh, when you want to own something, you really want to make sure you have a long-term need for the property, uh, you have excess capital on your balance sheet, and you have a low discount rate. That's going to give you the optimal ownership economics. And here's an example here that we looked at. Um, this was a situation where somebody was in a lease, they're leasing 100,000 square feet, they have a 15-year term lease, their net rent is $15. Um, the cap rate on that, the value of that particular property, we have at a 7% cap rate, which kind of prices that property at about uh, $214 a square foot. However, if you own it, you'd be purchasing it for the $214 a square foot. You'd have depreciation on there of um, five, uh, $5.35 per square foot. We have some other assumptions in here that your discount rate is 5% along with a tax rate of 35% and opportunity cost of 5% of as well. And when you kind of feed all this into the model, you begin to see that um, you know, there's a benefit to actually owning. And what I have up there uh, right now are, are two sets of comparatives here. The first set, the, the top set, is your after-tax cash flows, with the light gray being you continue to lease the building. Um, and it just charts out the cash flows for that. And then I have the same cash flows charted out if you were to actually purchase the building. And really what becomes important is the net present value. And in this case, you can see the net present value, which is, which is right here. These are the NPVs of both situations. And the lowest cost is the, the purchase and own. So you're getting a $200,000 benefit there. Not a lot of money. Um, but really, when it comes to NPV, most treasurers and most CFOs say, look, what's really important to me is how's it going to impact our earnings? And it better be net present value positive to do it. Uh, 
And so it's not the amount of NPV positive in, in many cases, but the fact that it is actually positive. So the, the second set of bars here, the lower set, is actually the cash flows. This is the impact from a pre-tax gap perspective. And what really becomes important is, is this going to be accretive to earnings or is it going to be dilutive? And in this case, as you can see, oh, I apologize. In this case, as you can see, um, to actually lease is going to be a cost of $1.9 million. To actually own is going to be a cost across the board of $1.1 million. So this would actually be accretive to earnings across the board. And in my experience, most CFOs and treasurers are really looking at the next five years because that's kind of how they budget. So in this situation, it's beneficial to actually own. So moving on to the next example here, and these are just some summaries of what we just talked about here. Uh, $700,000 earnings benefit here, an NPV benefit of $200,000. Uh, we talk about the purchase price and, and the annual cost savings. Uh, the next is uh, long-term sale leaseback. So we're going to take the same situation and we're going to kind of reverse it and, and show you, you know, you know, a situation where it's beneficial to actually lease uh, but let's talk about the points of leverage. So you still need the same points of leverage here that you're going to use when you're approaching the market to get the lowest cost of capital. Uh, you do want to need the property for a long term. You want to be, you know, you you, you want to put your best foot forward as it relates to credit. You don't always have to be investment grade, but that certainly does help. It just increases the buyer pool. Uh, and um, you know, if you have a high discount rate the likelihood of lease coming up versus when we had a low discount rate of, of ownership coming up is very strong. And you know, more and more, which is different than 2007 when we would do this analysis for a lot of corporates, you know, we're seeing corporates using the higher discount rates. They're, they're saying our hurdle rate for making an investment in anything, including the real estate, is 10, 11, 12%. It's not three, four, five percent what I can actually borrow money at because there's no value in us just borrowing money. The real value is us in getting return on our assets, including our real estate. So if I can't get a decent return, then um, I'd rather lease it. And in this situation, you know, we have, um, uh, we have a very similar fact pattern here. Uh, we have the same 100,000 square feet. We have a lease term, the same lease term, 15 years. Uh, same escalator, same cap rate, same fact pattern, but the big difference is now we're using a discount rate of 10%. And, and when you do that, and you look at the results, you suddenly see um, a, re a reversed picture here. You see a situation where the cost to own, or at least on, a, on an MPV basis, there's a net present value benefit to actually uh, leasing the property versus owning it. And a lot of that comes down to residual. Because remember, an investor is not going to say, I have a vacant building at the end. So he's going to put a much higher residual on that property because he thinks you're going to have a need for it, or he puts some amount of probability on the end of that, that you can't. Because as a user, you will be selling a vacant building. If you're not, then guess what? You're doing a sale leaseback, right? So we're, we're back to these economics. So you know, there's a, a play in there about around residual risk. And in this case, as we looked at the vacant value 
at the end of 15 years, um, you know, you are getting an inflow of eight and a half million dollars, but you're getting it way out there in year 15 versus your inflow of 18 million dollars today. And um, in this fact pattern, uh, by increasing the discount rate to 10%, you see a complete reversal of the solution. And it is, it's a lease over and own. And you're also seeing uh, it not having a negative impact on earnings. Here's your earnings down here, and over the first five years, you're seeing a situation where it's earnings neutral, NPV beneficial, the decision tends to go to, to lease. And again, you're using your discount rate, you're using the leverage to get this low cost of funds from the market of your long-term lease and your investment grade credit rating. Uh, that's just a summary of the results on that. Uh, moving on to uh, one of my favorites is the acquisition and sale leaseback. So these are situations where you're in a lease currently, um, you don't like something about it. Uh, maybe you don't like the rent, maybe you don't like the landlord, maybe you don't like the way the lease is structured. You know, is there a situation where you can actually go out, acquire the building, and then either resell it into a new sale leaseback, which is the case here, or maybe just own it? Um, so. Looking at this situation here, you know, when you're looking at these acquisition and sale leasebacks, they become somewhat complicated um, just because when you're acquiring something, you also can't be in the market kind of reselling it kind of until you own it. So they tend to be very uh, quiet deals done kind of privately. But the benefits are, 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 are extreme. Uh, you know, if you have a very low discount rate, you might choose to just continue to own it. And I have two examples here that we're going to share with you. Uh, one if you're looking at a long-term lease, one if you're in a short-term lease. Uh, the upfront proceeds that you get, that you purchase the building for, you know, there's some good arbitrage in these things. If you're buying it for, let's say, $150 a square foot, but you know you can resell it with the right rent and a long-term lease for $200 a square foot, you know, you have some options available to you. What we've said in our examples here is that the purchase price is also going to be the sale price, and the benefit that you're getting, that arbitrage, you're going to see in the form of a lower rent. But in some cases, companies would prefer to have that money. So you can kind of go out, you know, you're buying it at $150, you're putting on a bigger, a bigger rent or the same rent, and you're going to capture that $50 a square foot in cash. Uh, things to consider when you're looking at these types of transactions are... Um, you never want to make sure that you never want title coming to you because you'll just have uh, two sets of transfer costs. So you always want title going from the current owner to the new owner. Uh, the sale leaseback is generally performed off market because, like I said, you can't really be in the market selling something that you really don't own. And not only that, but there tends to be a lot of confidential information that you're giving the new investors that you kind of don't want your seller to see because all of a sudden the price will go up. Uh, less likely to receive uh, tenant improvement allowances than in a standard lease extension. Yeah, so, so you're not going to get your tenant improvement allowances. So if you're going to make investments, you probably want to kind of make those investments before it's resold because you could sell those improvements along with the lease um, and your option to sell leasehold improvements. So those are some things to think about, and I have an example here for you. Um, here, again, we're looking at the same building here, 100,000 square foot building. Uh, you're in a 15-year lease. The building is valued at $214. Uh, 
you're actually reselling that building uh, for the same sale price. So we have our purchase price. We have our purchase price here, and we're also selling it for the same price here. Um, however, you know the cap rate you're buying it for is a seven cap, but you're actually selling it for a six cap, and there is your arbitrage. Now, how do you get your arbitrage? And you're going to get it in the form of, of a lower rent. So before we had a $15 rent, but because we've gone out with a different lease or a different term, um, we're actually able to kind of get a lower rent and yet still be in the same building um, and have the same benefits that you had before. And you kind of see how the economics work when you kind of make that arbitrage work for you. In this case, we had a net present value benefit of $1.4 million. You know, $1.4 million is okay. It's a 100,000 square foot building. You know, if it was a million square foot building, you know, these economics would all be boosted, of course. So here you saw the, um, the NPV benefit here, and then most important here is your occupancy savings. So it's a lower cost, it's accretive to earnings, and that tends to work for everybody. Uh, we have another example here for you. Um, so this is a situation where you're actually doing a, an acquisition sale leaseback, but now you're actually buying this not from a 15-year lease, but you're actually buying it out of um, a, a five-year remaining lease or a lower term remaining lease. So your situation is going to be one where you can actually uh, purchase it more aggressively. So again, it's just more arbitrage. The benefit there uh, when you only have a short-term lease remaining is that the owner knows that he's going to be in trouble if you move. And you do have the option to move. Um, we'll get into, into some of that later. But nevertheless, when you do have the option to move, you can kind of really begin to use that uh, to your benefit here. I think here what I'm seeing is we have a three-year lease term. So now, instead of buying it for $214 like we had before, because you have a three-year lease term, there's a lot more risk in the asset, so you're actually buying it um, for a higher cap rate. And in this case, I just said $150 a square foot. And again, we're not trying to get the arbitrage in cash, because what I've found is a lot of corporates really want it in the occupancy cost savings. So we're going to go to market with uh, the same price of $150 a square foot, but again, we're getting that six cap rate because we've, we're now into a long-term lease. So you've got a lot of arbitrage here, and you can really see the benefits on the next page as to what that means to you. So our NPV went from $1.4 million all the way up to $4 million. And uh, our, our earnings are far more creative than they were. So you're getting some, some real benefit there. So things to think about and use the leverage of your lease term and your credit worthiness and your need for the building um, in those cases. Uh, there's just some summary of results here. Uh, okay, acquisition and sale, leaseback short-term current lease. So we just went through here. Ah, the lease buy-down. Um, this one is used mostly in the blend and extend scenarios uh, where um, you, you, you want something, but you're ready to give something. But, you know, a, you don't always have to do that in a lease buy-down. You, you can actually have situations here where, um, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you're paying above market rent 
You don't want to be paying above market rent. And you want to see if there's um, something that you can do to kind of lower your rent and still have it work for you. And in those cases, you know, you could look at a situation uh, like this where you do a lease buy-down. It works most successfully when you're trying to leverage the fact that internally you do have a low discount rate, low return of capital, because you're going to be deploying capital to get something from, from the owner, but your cost of capital is far lower than his. And, and therefore, there should be some arbitrage for you in that. Of course, you also want to make sure that there is excess capital. Just because you have a low discount rate, it doesn't mean Treasury is going to say, here, use this money. You know, they, they tend to be a, a little more stingy than that. Um, so if they are saying, please deploy, here's our discount rate, that's great news. You should look at your lease portfolio and say, where am I paying above market rents? And what I'm going to show you is a sample, an example here where um, you have a situation where you are paying above market rents. Um, in this case, I'm saying your current rent is $20 a square foot, but market rent or where you want to be is $10 a square foot. Um, your discount rate uh, here, and, and here I have an 8.75 pre-tax discount rate, which is still sizable discount rate. Uh, but the investor says, you know, as long as I get a 7%, a discount on, on this present value of, of rent, I'm okay with that. Um, so essentially saying at 7%, uh, I'll take $10 a square foot for, for 10 years, present value of that back, it comes to uh, $70.24 uh, per square foot. Uh, in, this is money that you would be advancing to them. Uh, in, in, and in return, he's now lowering your rent to $10 a square foot. And you're like, why would I want to prepay rent? Because essentially that's what you're doing. But if, as you look at the impact of this, it's pretty compelling. Um, so initially we have a $20 rent across the board here. And there's typically some type of a management fee. We just have a 3% management fee here. So you know your, your real rent ends up being $20.60 a square foot. So now we've kind of gone out and we've said, you know what, for $70, I'm going to give, for $70 a square foot, I'm going to give you, I want in return a $10 rent. So you're going to go ahead and give him um, $70. I'll show you the cash flow on the next slide here. This is the P&L impact. Um, so what you're actually doing here or having to do is take that $70 and you have to amortize that over the term of the lease. Let's say there's 10 years remaining. So you still have that as a cost. You have your new rent at $10. Your management fee has now gone down because it's based on a $10 rent versus a $20 rent. And your cost of funds, uh, you know, we have a cost of funds in here because you actually had to deploy money, so I'm saying that your treasury is going to charge you that same discount rate cost of funds that we had before. Um, and in fact, you may not even have this, so this might be additional accretive earnings, but you kind of see how your, your profile continues to get better and better and better and be accretive to earnings across the board to the point where, you know, over 10 years, your, your benefit is $28 a square foot. So it's a little bit better than what you had before. When you look at it on a cash flow basis, um, you could see the NPVs here that we have. Um, uh, you know, we had a net present value of $97 a square foot before. Now we've brought it down to $90 a square foot, so you've saved $7 a square foot. So they're unique situations, but you should look at it 
if you have a low cost of funds, the economics gets even more compelling as you kind of look at these numbers from both an earnings perspective and then also from, a, um, from an MPV perspective. Uh, okay, uh, we have two more things here, <laughs> two more products for you. Then we're going to go into some keys, things to look for, and uh, some case studies here. Um, so this is a situation, uh, tenant-led built-to-suits um, versus a developer-led built-to-suit. This is a situation where um, you're actually using your, uh, your tenancy and the fact that you do want to move, your occupancy. You're in a situation where you don't, you know, you've been in a building maybe 20, 30 years, maybe longer. Uh, you're now saying that that building is no longer core. It's no, no, no longer really servicing our needs. We want to kind of look at something else. And you have two options. You could do a build-to-suit, but you could do a build-to-suit that you lead as a tenant, or you could do a build-to-suit that the developer leads. And the arbitrage difference between those two, just on the financing side, could be anywhere between 100 and 200 basis points. And when you take that 100 or 200 basis points and you multiply that, because that's an annual savings, right, by 15 or 20 years, it get, becomes pretty remarkable as far as you know, how, how, how big that number gets. Uh, obviously, the benefits of doing tenant-led, as we have here, uh, you're in a new facility. Uh, you're, you're doing the build-to-suit because you're probably trying to get into a more efficient building. Uh, you can densify pretty dramatically, um, so you're going to have a footprint savings. Uh, you're going to have the ability to fund the entire project, so you're not really going to be coming out of out of pocket with cash other than maybe your FF&E. We don't get investors to really do many of that type of investments. Uh, you have the potential to get state incentives or local incentives to assist with the purchase or the, the new bill to suit. And, um, and there's going to be some present value savings that you're going to see here uh, as we look at that arbitrage between developer-led versus tenant-led. Things to think about is your, your ability to manage the incentive process. It's not a simple process, um, and it becomes very involved. Uh, the ability for you to manage the development, another key point that you have to really think through. Can you do this, or do you need the developer to pretty much do everything for you? Uh, requires a long-term lease. These do, really don't work well on 10-year leases. You're really looking at 15 or 20-year lease. Uh, site selection can be difficult, so it's another consideration that you have to look at when you're trying to make that decision, tenant-led or develop, developer-led. And um, lease classification. If you want this to be an operating lease, you really have to focus on some of the rules around that. But if you get it straight and you have guidance on all these items, it could become a very compelling story. Here um, behind me, I've just really... Uh, have an example of what the benefit is from a dollars and cents perspective of just looking at a situation where you know you're doing a developer-led transaction at maybe an 8% lease constant against the building budget uh, versus a tenant-led transaction where you're doing it and you're saving that margin. And the difference that I have here is you can see the, the, the discount rate of 8% here, which is the developer-led constant here. I'm sorry, uh, that's the discount rate. The developer-led constant here that I'm using on a $100 million transaction is a 7.75% 7 
least constant applied against the budget. So you're looking at a $7.75 um, uh, or millions of dollars, depending on how you want to look at it, um, rent annually versus a, a six million and $250,000 rent if you're doing a tenant-led. So you can see that there is um, some savings, annual savings right there. And um, I just have it underneath there. You can see the annual savings is a million and a half dollars. When you multiply that by 20 years, that becomes you know, a savings of uh, $15 million. Uh, to, the, to the right there, I have a little sensitivity chart that you can see, and we have kind of blocked out you know, what we did as far as the arbitrage. But you can begin to see that the, the benefits as you begin to arbitrage more on the term side and more on the least constant side become greater and greater. So the savings becomes greater and greater. So there's some real benefit. You really need to look at that when you begin to look at build-to-suits. Now that's just the finance side of it alone. When you begin to look at it from an operating perspective, I also have an example here. And the example that we're looking at here is you're currently in a 100,000 square foot building. But if you go to a build to suit, you can kind of get down to 80,000 square feet. So you have 20,000 square foot savings. Uh, your OPEX at the old building was $10. It now drops to eight. So you see some savings there. Um, your reserves in an older building are higher. Here we have a dollar a square foot. Uh, that drops down to, when you're in a new building, 25 cents a square foot. Uh, the incentives can come in. And, you know, you know the average incentives on these deals, um, you know, could be upwards of $75 a square foot, depending on where you're looking, what you're doing, and how many people you, you would be using at that site. But it could be pretty dramatic. At least it has been in the deals that we've been working on. So you're getting some credit there. You're paying more for rent because in an older building, you know, the status quo is only $12. In a new building, it's going to be, let's say, the $16.25. So there's an increase in cost there. Uh, but when you look at it and you add up all the differences, your, your total cost per square foot is, you know, you're seeing a savings of $2.25 a square foot, which means, you know, you're looking at a savings of $640,000 as you look at this example. And over 12 years, on the operating side alone, you're looking at savings of uh, $12.8 million. So pretty dramatic. Uh, the short-term sale leaseback. Um, uh, this is a situation where, you know what, you're going to be selling a building. Uh, you know you're only going to need it for the next two to three years. So your real choice is, do I sell it vacant, or do I try to sell it right now with a three-year sale leaseback? And what we're going to show you here in our economics is that you should really think about that three-year sale leaseback because the incremental cost for rent is going to be offset by the fact that you're going to be able to sell it for more and more than just the present value of your rents. Um, so the example that we're using here is one where um, the vacant value is $30 a square foot. Uh, you're going to lease this, I have five years in this case, and I'm saying you're going to lease it at $10 a square foot, so we've present valued that at 8%. So you've, you're getting from the investor $40 a square foot additional. Uh, the carrying cost now that he's going to charge you, because you know, as he thinks about your vacancy, he's going to say, you know what, now that I have them paying income and paying an occupancy cost for this period of time, and I know they're going to leave after five years, and I'm okay with that, 
I know I can start marketing it two years or 18 months in advance, so I'm not going to have that huge operating expense that I was going to have buying a vacant building because it's going to take some time to kind of get the building into the market, get it ready for market, get it marketed, and they just will give you that credit, uh, additional credit for the savings that they're going to reap in being able to kind of get it to market earlier. Uh, so in this case, you know, we have a total cost uh, or a total value from $30 a square foot up to $86 a square foot. But as you know, you're paying, you're paying a rent now, and you've got to kind of justify that. But as we looked at it, uh, we saw the increased proceeds of $56 a square foot here. You're paying rent of $10 a square foot. You're no longer depreciating the asset because you've sold it. Okay, and in our example here, we're saying you had five, $5 of per square foot depreciation. So you can begin to see that your cost for five years, your additional cost was $25 a square foot, but yet you reaped an additional $56 a square foot. So there is some value in using your lease term, leveraging lease term, to kind of get more proceeds out of these properties before, or before you consider selling them vacant. Um, the package deal. Okay, so this is, um, this is a situation where you have a very large portfolio, you have a lot of vacancy in there, you know that you've got to get rid of a lot of vacancy. You can't sell your stuff completely vacant uh, because if you do, you're going to take these large write-downs and you know, management is just not prepared to give you an okay to take major write-downs in, in the real estate portfolio. So what we like to do is we package up all the assets. We approach a value investor and we get the value investor to begin to give you, you know, value the assets fairly, kind of the way we've been talking about them. Uh, but they come to you and they, and they buy it for a single, a single price, knowing that they're going to get some assets on long-term leases, some assets, let's call it 15 years, some assets a 10-year lease, some five-year lease, and some vacant. And then you're going to kind of see some of the benefits of that could include the fact that um, since you're getting one price from them, you can begin to take control over how you allocate those to each of your assets. Now, you're going to have to use... Um, your market statistics to say, hey, I've applied a market value to each asset. So you're going to have to make sure the file has those market comparatives in there for you. But again, that control comes back to you versus um, going to, to, to the buyer who's saying, I'm giving you this much for this asset, this much for that asset. So you get to do the allocation, which means that as you look at it, um, you have some control over how you'll apply gains. And in this example here, we have uh, several different asset types here. We have 15-year sale leasebacks, 10-year sale leasebacks, five vacant. And what the bars represent is what the, what the sale value is you know, relative to, the, um, to your cost basis, your net book value. So if you did it individually, you'd be getting gains here that you'd have to amortize over the lease, gains here that you'd probably have to amortize over the lease, small loss here, and a big loss here if you do them individually. But if you do it as a package deal, you can see they're very close. So the goal would be to do a package deal, get a good value out of it, and begin to apply as much as you can within reason. And if it's not within market, you're going to just maybe throw that asset out or, or consider something else. Um, you can pretty much amortize, you know, take, the, uh, take a small gain and even that small gain just amortize it 
over the lease periods. But, you know, it goes from a possible $30 million loss in this situation to really a $1.3 million gain if, if packaged properly. Continuing with this example, um, we have... So what I've done here is we, we have, um, we're going to show you the cash flows of this particular transaction and, and some of the savings associated with it here. So if they just kind of continue doing what they were doing and, you know, their plan was just to sell some vacant assets off over time, we've charted out the cash flows that you can see here. Um, and, you know, they're going to be on this gray line here, status quo, but if doing the package deal, um, they're actually going to get some gain up front or get some proceeds up front, and they're going to have a different cost profile. They're going to have rents across the board here. And, um, and in this case, it was net present value positive event. But really what was important is looking at the earnings impact, which is this down here. And here they were running their occupancy, cross, their occupancy costs across the board. Uh, in doing the package deal, you can kind of see that it's um, been significantly, re it's been reduced to the point where, you know, they are accretive, it's accretive to earnings. In this case, uh, it gets more accretive to earnings because, you know, in year five, they're kind of coming out of some leases. That's kind of why they did the five-year leases, because they knew they were going to exit them. So it becomes more accretive as time goes on. Um, so in this situation, we had a 20 $20 million benefit to doing it from an economic perspective and a $59 million benefit from an earnings profile perspective. Okay, so that was only the sale leaseback. Okay, so that was the benefit of doing the sale leaseback alone. Okay, really where the savings is in this program here that we were talking about is, is getting rid of a lot of your vacancy. And in this situation that we were involved in, um, we, they got rid of vacancy of 600, um, over 600,000 square feet of vacancy here on a million two square foot portfolio. So when you look at the economics there, and you can't see them perfectly, but the fact is, you know, they were paying $9 a square foot in their total OPEX, so they were saving that $9 a square foot on, this, on, this pro on these properties that they came out of which was pretty dramatic savings. Of course, they had to redeploy into other space, so they don't get 100% of that. But the savings was pretty dramatic to the point where when you looked at it on an operating basis, you know, they were saving significantly across the board. And you know, they still had the fact that they raised $90 million of cash by selling the assets, got rid of their depreciation, and have significant operating savings. So that ends that section here. Um, just some quick things to think about as you kind of look at your portfolio on how you can begin to use some of these opportunities here. Uh, if you have a short remaining lease term, you can look at it. If you have a low discount rate, you want to kind of consider an acquisition. If you have a high discount rate, you want to consider an acquisition sale leaseback. Older generation buildings, consider your built-to-suits. And you can do built-to-suit um, to own. If, if needed, you're still going to get all the operational savings or a bill to suit to lease using a tenant-led. Above market rents, consider your sale, your, your lease buy-downs. And uh, if you're in a below market rent situation, 
consider an acquisition or an acquisition sale leaseback because if you're in a long-term lease and they're way below market rents, that investor is trapped into a lower than market value on the building because they're trapped into a lower than market uh, earnings in stream on the rents. Again, it's another situation where you can look at either owning it if you have low cost of funds or doing an acquisition and then sale leaseback and getting that arbitrage. Um, Built-in purchase options, consider again the acquisitions or the acquisition sale leasebacks. Um, and uh, if, um, if you have a situation where you know you're going to put a lot of money into a lease building, you really need to consider an acquisition sale leaseback because once you put the money into the building, you're going to be depreciating that over the remaining term of the lease, which could really hit your P&L dramatically. That goes away when you do an acquisition sale leaseback because you get to redeploy, you get to sell those improvements to the new lender or to the new owner. Uh, troubled investor, take advantage of. If you can, we'll help. And uh, that's pretty much it. I have some case studies here. You know, we did the, uh, the Zurich transaction. They did a tenant-led transaction, a tenant-led build to suit here. It's happening right now. You guys probably heard about it. But you know, they're saving over $140 million just by doing a tenant-led build to suit over doing a developer-led build to suit. That's just pure savings that they're getting because they're running that process. Uh, Walgreens, that was a situation where they actually did 10-year um, sale leasebacks on some of their headquarter buildings. Again, it was a great strategy for them. They have their flexibility to stay there long-term if they choose to, but they also don't have to. They had great timing. They got a great cap rate. Uh, and they also got the investor to guarantee them $5 million of improvement money. So this is money they know they're going to need to put into the buildings over the next 24 months, but now they don't have to invest it and depreciate it over you know, eight remaining years or seven remaining years. So it's very helpful to them. The Citibank portfolio, again, another bank portfolio. Um, you know, they went to market uh, with, uh, we, we took to market on their behalf, a portfolio similar to the package deal I talked about. It's not their deal, so don't look at those economics as their deal. Um, but nevertheless, they got all the benefits from that package deal that we, that we just talked about. Uh, Tate and Lyle, that was a situation where they actually own, uh, they were a lessor in a long-term lease. They invested a lot of money into that building, almost double the value of the building. So we actually were able to purchase the building out of lease for them and then resell it to a new owner with a new lease. And we also sold the leasehold improvements as well. So they got all their leasehold improvements out of it, upwards of $27 million dollars. Plus, they got, um, they got control of the building, and um, they have a lower rent. So they got the arbitrage in a couple of different ways. And that's all I have to say today. And I'm sure that was more than you were hoping for. Bruce, quick question. Um, who would you generally say when a CRE team is looking at one of these opportunities, who should they bring to the table to have that discussion with? Who do you usually see is involved in these discussions? On their side on or their side. on the advisory side? Okay, so when you're looking at a complex situation, let's call it a package deal, you know, the best team to work with is we, we're normally called in and, you know, we initially start in working with the real estate team. But really, to round out the team, we tend to ask that there's a finance person involved. 
and an accounting person because there's a lot of um, unique decisions that happen in the documentation that really involve those two types of players. So uh, on their side, it tends to be you know, the real estate person, finance person, and in, and in some cases, the facility people too, just because they want to make sure they have all the same control that they would need in, in the building. So I had a question on the acquisition sale leaseback, uh, and in particular the example where you know the occupier has a short remaining term left. If they're looking to acquire the asset, would the investor just kind of assume that they're going to need the asset long term and, and try to value it that way, or are there strategies that the occupier can use to kind of get around that? Yeah. Uh, so there's the game uh, that you play, um, and it's you know you have to play your cards very close to the vest in those situations. Uh, you know, as soon as the investor knows that you need it long term, you know, the cat's out of the bag. So you, you really can't let that be known. I mean, you, typically when we are approaching investors, we let them know there's options and we're considering different options. One of them is we'll buy your building. But if we can't buy your building, then we're going to look at other buildings. So is your building for sale or not? And it's pretty much the way we, we tend to negotiate. Uh, as you were discussing the short-term sale leaseback, I didn't catch the cap rate on that particular transaction. Sure. What do you see as the premium for a short-term? Yeah. So, you know, when you're three years remaining and you're probably not going to renew or the likelihood of renewal is, is low, I mean, you could see those cap rates go anywhere between 8 and 10%, depending on the, the property, where it is, the value, how it sits relative to other properties. Um, so it all depends on the facts and circumstances. You're not going to get an 8 to 10% cap rate if it's you know sitting right here at CBD Maine in Maine. But you might get it if it's in, you know, I don't know, Harvard or St. Louis or somewhere else. I apologize if anyone's from St. Louis. It's, it's been a tough market down there, though. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. Let's give him a round of applause. Uh, please fill out your surveys, and we'll see you in April. Thank you.